This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for the statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, the Spade Interview Series on designing the future of defense and security. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I had the opportunity to conduct a series of interviews with government executives and thought leaders during this year's Spade Conference hosted in Susteberg, the Netherlands. Spade brought together defense and intelligence leaders from Europe and around the world in dialogue with experts from IBM and industry. This year's theme is Designing for the Future of Defense and Security, and it explored such ideas as the successful integration of artificial intelligence, AI, into national security. Artificial intelligence has a profound potential to affect the balance of power in both the global economy and in military competition. While AI has a long history, it has begun to deliver results within the last decade particularly with the recent rapid progress in machine learning and the increased availability of data and computing power. As impactful as the recent progress has been, AI remains highly problem-specific and context-dependent. What is artificial intelligence? How is it similar or distinct from such things as machine learning and robotics? How and in what areas is AI being adopted in the national security space? And how can government and the military enhance their AI ecosystem? I'll explore these questions and more with two special guests. Andrew Hunter, Director of the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, and Zach Lemios, Vice President, Government Programs at IBM Research. Andrew, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Zach, welcome. Thanks, Michael. So I want to talk to you gentlemen about operationalizing uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, but prior to uh, our discussion and delving into the topic, could you perhaps define and describe what we mean for the purposes of this conversation uh, by uh, artificial intelligence, AI? How is it similar or distinct from machine learning and robotics? Well, it's a great question because I think it is a term that is used very loosely and used by people to mean a lot of different things. Uh, And my own preference is to use it in a very broad sense, to talk about artificial intelligence as a collection of technologies that includes machine learning, for sure, includes other things like computer vision, robotics, other ways in which machine intelligence can perform tasks that historically have been human cognitive tasks. Uh, And so uh, that broad definition makes a lot of sense. When it gets to the issue of operationalizing, of course, it's important to kind of narrow down. Great. 
Zach, did you want to add? Yeah, I, I would just add a couple of things. I, I think of, uh, first of all, it is a broad term, and it's one that's uh, not carefully used across the industry or even practitioners. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say that when I think about robotics, when I think about autonomy, I think of those as more of applications of AI. Uh, the technology piece is what everybody's struggling with today, um, how, you, how we engineer AI systems to have certain attributes. One of those attributes is the ability to engage with and interact with human operators, individuals, to help them make better decisions, to help them understand features and signatures that are kind of hidden. Uh, and then the applications go far broader than that. Great. So, you know, it, it is, it's a good way to set this conversation up because while AI is something of a buzzword that promoters of all kinds like to you know, advertise something that, that they are pursuing or implementing as AI, why is it so hard to know just what real AI is? And um, how different, how is the adoption in the commercial sector versus the government sector happening? Well, I think one of the reasons it's hard is because uh, the distinction between a machine doing what humans do and humans doing what humans do, um, in some ways, it's very stark because machines simply don't perform cognitive, cognitive tasks the way that a human does. And so this leads to the confusion of saying, is what the machine doing human cognitions? Well, it isn't, at least not in terms of where the state of the technology is today. But the machines are performing cognitive tasks that have relevance to important decision-making processes, uh, and increasingly, of course, in in the national security space. So uh, I actually get frustrated whenever you try to drill down and say, is this technology real AI? Because I think for purposes of what matters at a policy level, um, that distinction is not that important. Because the key factors of what the policymaker has to understand about the technology are present even if what's being done is simply data analytics or uh, simply some other data-driven machine-assisted task being performed. Great. Zach, did you want to follow up? I'd say that, um, you know, this is a space where we're seeing so much advancement and so many interesting applications in the commercial sector. We Mm -hmm. see this every day, Mm -hmm. right? We see it with uh, Alexa, with Siri, with things that we all interact with. We see, see it with applications that now provide recommendations for hotels and for airline reservations. And it's starting to be very much embedded in the consumer space. And across national security in this other context, absolutely the national security apparatus will use these, these uh, technologies and concepts, mm-hmm. but they have to be adapted a little bit. They have to be adapted for trust and for assurance they have to be integrated with an environment that currently exists. And the defense industrial base and the companies that provide these capabilities have to uplift their, their tradecraft as well. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to go into it. My next question for the audience was around where we see, uh, in what sectors do we see a lot of this? And I think you hinted at that, uh, Zach, if not directly stated it. But, you know, how um, how is the adoption and use of AI um, sort of different within the public sector and the commercial sector. Um, what are you seeing? How do they differ? How do they complement each other? Well, I think there's an advantage right now in the commercial sector for the issue of implementation uh, because there's a different uh, risk level and there's a different risk <clears throat> tolerance. 
uh, with risk tolerance, uh, you see, for example, a lot of implementation of artificial intelligence, pretty robust uh, in the financial uh, markets and with firms that are doing trades using AI algorithms. Uh, and they're, they're very, very aggressive with it. They've given a lot of capability to these algorithms and authority to make and place trades. Uh, and, of course, it is high risk because there's billions of dollars on the line. Uh, but by the same token, uh, an algorithm that performs marginally better over a period of time than a human trying to do the same thing, uh, that's a risk worth taking in the financial markets. Tiny changes in, in percentage of return on investment have big implications in the financial world. So they've, uh, it's not that the risk is, is low or non-existent in that universe, uh, but their ability to tolerate that risk is pretty high. Um, the government context, I would argue, is very different. Uh, many government missions, I would most probably would be fair to say, are what I call high-consequence missions, meaning that these are frequently life-and-death matters. Of course, that's certainly true in combat, but it's also true when it comes to search and rescue. It's true when it comes to health care. It's true when it comes to uh, even some of the more simple regulatory decisions the government makes, that lives will be on the line uh, with these. And so the tolerance for risk is much less. Uh, and the need for the algorithm to be able to reliably demonstrate performance is quite high. And that's something we're very much still working on. So for the government, the ability to implement and adopt AI, uh, it's going to take more time. Still critical to do, but it's going to take more time, I think. Interesting. Zach, did you want to follow up? Yeah, I think the, the, the other point to make here is uh, absolutely agree that the risk tolerance is, is a little bit different, actually quite different. In, in the national security context as, as compared with the commercial sector. But the way these systems are acquired is also quite different. When a company decides to use a machine learning or a planning algorithm as part of their social network assessment or as part of their order fulfillment space, that's a decision that a company makes with its customers, with the data that it owns, and with the infrastructure that it, it operates. When the, the DOD, when the department decides to implement a solution, it's actually quite different. Mm -hmm. They have to, I mean, they think carefully about how do they integrate a force structure around this? How does that, how does that capability become an integrated capability with the service members that will be using it, with the civilian team that will be part of it, with the contractors that are going to provide it? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's no longer at least in that context, no longer sort of a unitary acquisition. It requires a team, and it requires a team that understands how is this capability actually going to be part of a force structure or a national security apparatus. And that's very different than a company that says, gee, I'm going to, I'm going to, offer, um, I'm going to offer scooters for rental in Washington, D.C. That seems to be the latest craze. And I'm going to do it in such a way that I can forecast the need, I can forecast where I need to provision them, I do some preventive maintenance uh, forecasting for uh, how when I need to take these down. That's a very different environment than building a capability that has to be part of a joint operating environment. And that's a great uh, lead up to the next question I have, which is, um, you know, uh, obviously uh, the use of AI has been enshrined, it seems, of late uh, in the U.S. national security strategy and national defense strategy. I'd like to ask you both if you could explore how and in what areas um, do you see AI adoption in this uh, in the national uh, security space? 
Well, I would say right now, AI adoption is proceeding most rapidly where the necessary <laughs> preconditions are present. And that may or may not align with actual strategic priorities, uh, which may be sad, but is true and probably has been true you know, throughout human history and therefore not to be critiqued too much. And, and by the necessary preconditions, there's sort of a fundamental infrastructure of support required to successfully implement artificial intelligence. And it's to have the access to the computing necessary to for these algorithms to operate and for them to train, to have the data uh, to feed into your artificial intelligence algorithm so that, again, it can train and it can detect and find what it's looking for uh, and narrow down and discriminate. Uh, to have the people skills, to have people with the understanding of uh, either the interface, if it's a if it's an algorithm where there's been a lot of development done and there is a you know discrete user interface, or for a less finished product, product someone with actual coding expertise to understand what's going on. Uh, and so there's actually fairly limited examples within government where all of these preconditions are satisfied. Uh, we do see pretty heavy adoption right now with intelligence agencies. Uh, and it uh, makes sense to me because I think the intelligence agencies have invested in the last decade in computing capability, in networking, and in having a workforce in the new cyber world that understands a lot of these uh, technologies. I wanted to pick up because you mentioned the difference, uh, perfect illustration of the difference between the commercial sector choice and how the national security or government space would do it. And, and, and you pointed out on the reliability for actual implementation. Why are they different? Why is the government adoption of AI have a stronger reliability threshold? Uh, two things come to mind. First of all, you're in, in government space, certainly in national defense space, uh, the problems are ones that have high consequence. Mm -hmm. uh, simply can't tolerate uh, a failure or a miscue. Um, or bad things happen, right? So that's paramount. And that's paramount in the training. That's paramount in the acquisition of how the department acquires. It's not an AI statement. It's a general statement about how the department builds its capabilities. Mm -hmm. They are remarkably resilient. They're resilient because they're, they're designed and acquired to operate in a certain environment. And they typically operate in something that's adjacent. And the equipment, the personnel, the training all have to do that with certainty. And AI is going to be no different. If it's going to be adopted as a planner, if it's going to be adopted as a, um, as a logistics agent to help position where the force needs to be, or in the intelligence space forecast where a threat's likely to emerge, then that's going to be part of an overall structure. Um, and that forces that forces some pretty hard decisions as to how this will all be, you know, all be integrated into a common force structure. Absolutely critical. And it's a, it, and it is it, it, while the technology may be common, the stressors I think are going to be a little bit different. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Andrew, I want to make a plug for your report, the uh, artificial intelligence and national security the importance of the AI ecosystem. And in that report, you identified two outstanding debts, uh, debts that need to be paid for successful AI adoption. Uh, could you tell us more about those debts? To what extent are they major barriers uh, to AI adoption in U.S. government agencies? Well, to start with the second half of your question first, they, they are major barriers. And let me, let me explain a little bit why. 
And they are related. So the two debts are workforce debt and technical debt. Uh, and by technical debt, I mean IT infrastructure, uh, both in terms of the actual computers, desktops, and otherwise that people are using to, to do the work, building AI algorithms, training them, and applying AI to government problems. And then on the workforce side, the, the skills, the coding skills, the technical skills, the STEM background uh, to really engage with artificial intelligence. And why do I say they're related? They're related because when you're out there trying to acquire the best human talent possible to bring an AI capability into your organization, apply it to the mission of national security. And the algorithms aren't going to do that on their own, right? Yeah. The, the computer's not going to figure out how does the algorithm apply to the resupply of a forward operating location. Humans who do logistics in the military are going to have to be involved in that, uh, have to be essentially in control of that. And so finding the, the people with the talent, the coding expertise uh, to do that, they don't then want to come in and find out that essentially they're working on the equivalent of a, of a trash 80, uh, you know, the, the computer, the PC of the, uh, of the 1980s or something of, you know, at that level, uh, some really ancient computer that's not hooked up to the broader internet where they can't do the things that they expect their computer to do because they've been living in, the, in a world where computers are tied to the internet and can multi-process. And, you know, the, the reality is that in a lot of government, uh, the IT is pretty poor. In fact, it's terrible in many cases. And so that's the technical debt we're talking about, just this lack of investment in high-quality IT and in the network infrastructure that ties it together over time. And that deficit feeds into also this workforce deficit, making it really hard to recruit the talent you need uh, when they're confronted with a lack of the basic tools they need to do the job. Mm -hmm. Why did you use the term debt? It's an interesting uh, use of, of of language. What was that from, if, I, if you may? Well, it's it's a term that's been out there. It was not one that we invented. Uh, but we did adopt it because we think it conveys the fact that getting to AI is not going to be cheap. cheap. Okay. Now, that's not to say that there aren't ways in which it can be done more efficiently or less efficiently. Um, but we're, uh, one concern I have is sometimes when you talk to folks in government, they see potential, a lot of potential for savings with AI. And I, I don't want to discourage them from that. I think there are down the road some potential for savings in AI. But we think that there's, there's some investment that has to be done up front to really get into and access those savings. And that's where we thought the concept of debt actually was pretty nice, because a lot of times it makes sense to incur debt in order to uh, prepare for the future. How and what areas is AI being adopted in the national security space? I'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. How and in what areas is AI being adopted in the national security space? What is an AI ecosystem? How can government and the military enhance their AI ecosystems? Join Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Andrew Hunter, Director, Defense Industrial Initiatives Group at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and Zach Lemnios, Vice President, Government Programs at IBM Research. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. 
Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, the Spade Interview Series on designing the future of defense and security. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guests today are Andrew Hunter of CSIS and Zach Limnios of IBM Research. After decades of AI research being primarily the domain of the government-funded researchers, making slow progress from what I can understand, um, investment in AI exploded, as I understand it, since uh, 2010, I believe, was the time frame. What precipitated the increase in investment, and what are the implications of this increase? I, I see three things that sort of launched that. The first was the availability of enormous amounts of data The people researchers were able to exploit uh, the availability of machine learning and deep learning models that are now available to many. And the application of a few examples in the commercial sector that has, have driven people's imagination. I mentioned Siri. Siri was actually a DARPA program that was in my office when I was at DARPA. It started at a, as a small initiative at SRI International. We had a few researchers from MIT and Carnegie Mellon uh, SRI did the work. They spun it out as a uh, subsidiary purchased by Apple. Uh, but it was actually a, a small research initiative of maybe a dozen researchers or less. Um, and and we, were, we were tackling the problem of trying to build a, an avatar that would understand a conversation and provide a transcript of the conversation, not verbatim, but contextually. So it was really the first example of going beyond word spotting and, and simple capture of, of a conversation to understanding that conversation. Now, we didn't quite get very far on it. DARPA put a lot of money into it. didn't quite get very far. But once, uh, once SRI spun it out, once Apple acquired it, it became part of an ecosystem that many people started getting access to. And, and all of a sudden, it took off, right? And it was just the first of many. But, but the, the uptick of interest when a, a, a few small teams start making progress, the VC community saw this as a wave. Mm-hmm. The underlying technology was becoming mature enough that there are a whole host of startups that have begun in that space. And I, I think that had a lot to do with it. Um, a lot of other examples, but that was, that was probably, that was a turning point, I think, in moving AI natural language processing from a research artifact to something that people could see, use, and put in their pocket. Interesting. Andrew, did you have anything? Well, and I appreciate Zach bringing in the, the ecosystem idea. And we, you know, we chose to center our report, you know, with the title and, and very much conceptually around this idea of the ecosystem because of our uh, being convinced by talking to experts like Zach and others uh, that it's really the melding of these different discrete aspects into an ecosystem that enables you to take off, if you will, with artificial intelligence. So it's the people uh, with the technical background, uh, the skill set, the tie to the operational and mission objectives, because again, that doesn't work itself, Uh, the availability of the resources, and the connection uh, between all of them. And so when progress is being made, and I dare say if you go back in history, you might find times when there were developments in the AI field that might have been technically at least as significant 
as what happened in that 2009-2010 timeframe. But there wasn't necessarily the ecosystem there to, you know, to pick that progress up and quickly and rapidly disseminate it uh, to a broader community of folks who could then really run with it. Uh, but we did have that in this timeframe. Uh, now, I would say that on the government side of the ledger, uh, that, act, that ecosystem, the nascent elements of it are there, but it has not been tied together in the necessary way. And so that's conceptually why we chose to focus there. You, you kind of hinted at it, but for our audience, what are the main components or constituencies in this ecosystem, in the government uh, space particularly, and why is it so important for adoption to make sure that this is, this is the foundation from which to expand AI? Who are these elements of the ecosystem? And so we have uh, yeah, addressed several of them, but not all of them. So I appreciate the opportunity to elaborate. Um, you know, we talked about people with the right skills, the right mission experience and knowledge, the workforce, the technical debt, right, the computing, the IT, and the network uh, and storage. Uh, Zach uh, did a better job than me talking about the data. Uh, you know, just the the fact that we uh, collect and then critically keep, store, and uh, clean and evaluate vast quantities of data. DoD has always generated vast quantities of data. Uh, but for, for a long time, that data was essentially just discarded and not kept and retained over time. Uh, and as we've gone through the experience in the last 10 to 15 years, what uh, sometimes referred to as the global war on terror, we've come to appreciate the criticality of actually keeping, gathering and keeping this data so we can go back and learn from it the first time and then review it and learn again. And then the last piece, uh, last two pieces I would point to, one is security. So securing the data, securing the networks, securing the algorithms themselves as they're developed. And then on the policy side, uh, so the ability to actually use these tools, how do we manage the data? Uh, how are the tools protected? How are the tools authorized to be used? And, you know, the government, it tends to be a policy-directed organization. Until there's a policy for how to do something, you will often see that there's not a lot of activity happening in that space. And so that is also, policy is also slow to develop. And, but, but we see that coming on much more strongly right now. See, with the concept of the AI eco ecosystem, I'd like to transition a little bit to the investment approaches by commercial and uh, entities and government entities. And more importantly, what can the U.S. government do to ensure a more balanced approach to AI investment? I, I think on the research side, there's remarkable work that continues at agencies like DARPA and other agencies um, to push the frontier of AI solutions and AI concepts to include security, explainability, trust, um, all as core competencies in systems that will be needed going forward. But coming back to the ecosystem and standing that up, I think that's really where the government has to, you know, has to make a stand. Uh, there are a lot of companies that have a lot of good ideas. Uh, and, and the question is, how does a department, how does a, how does a U.S. government, how do partner nations, allies, harness that in a way that you can build an AI solution in a repeatable fashion without having to go back to square one every time you want to build something. We have that example in the hardware space. We don't have that example in software. In the hardware space, we have an entire ecosystem of intellectual property providers that provide sub-elements of a circuit that designers can utilize because these pieces have been used before, they've been validated. Uh, there's some understanding of what this particular part of the circuit can do or can't do. 
And as a designer, you integrate multiple tiles like this into a system, and you have some understanding of what the system can actually do. And there are design rules that help designers integrate piece parts from the supply chain and validation models of what that system can actually do. Very structured, well-organized, an ecosystem that feeds on itself. That is, there's a set of providers that provide the intellectual property. There's a set of integrators that integrate that intellectual property. There's teams that do the validation, very much of a structured environment. In the software space and in the AI space, it's not that way at all. Across the industry, it's not that way at all. But across the government, it's, it's much more ad hoc. And building an environment where industry, academia, government laboratories can participate in that and have common use of IP is going to be critically important in driving the acceptance of new concepts and accelerating new ideas into the field. Um, and that's, I think, going to be the next big the next big hurdle for the department and for the U.S. government to sort out. Mm -hmm. Short of that, every problem looks like a new problem. Mm -hmm. And you can never get to the end point. You'll never get to the end point. Andrew, do you have a follow-up? I, I do have okay, a couple sure, of thoughts, please. although Zach covered a lot of ground there, and I agree with what he said. Okay. Uh, just a few additional thoughts. Uh, it, it is our, our view, when we look at this, my co-authors and I, that uh, this is still a pretty early stage technology. And so one of the phrases we tried to use to capture that is that from a government perspective, spread your bets. Uh, machine learning has made, and neural networks have made incredible and demonstrated incredible progress in the last few years. But that doesn't mean there isn't another corner of the AI research space that won't blossom five years from now and be the thing that if you're completely out of touch with it, you've truly missed the boat. Uh, and are scrambling to catch up. So from a government perspective, uh, you know, we've got to, I think, remain in a place where we can stay in touch with all areas of the field, even those that may not, you know, apparently be making tremendous progress at the moment. I agree with Zach, you know, the, the risk profile is, is different. And so from a government perspective, this issue of verification and validation of does the AI capability deliver what it advertises to deliver, and will it do it reliably over time is really crucial because of the high-consequence nature of government missions. And to me, that suggests that there's a, a big role for government investment and in the fundamental science required to validate that. So uh, this goes outside my area of expertise, but more into Zach's. But you know, the fundamental question of how do you test AI yeah. Uh, and, and an algorithm that is that is learning and therefore is not the same a month from, if you test it, a month later, uh, a learning algorithm is a, is a slightly different entity. And so how do we know if it will still perform as it performed when we last tested it and achieve the, the outcomes that we're looking for? There's some fundamental science potentially that needs to be done to really understand that because we are, our history of test and validation and verification is on the hardware side where things are more certain and predictable and constant. So those are at least two areas, uh, two recommendations that we pulled out for how to think about the government's uh, process, decision-making process for investment. Uh -huh. Yeah, so I actually would remiss if we end this segment by not talking about sort of the overview of global investment activity in the AI ecosystem. What are other leading countries doing in this area, and how do they differ or complement what's going on in the U.S.? 
Well, we did a bit of an overview of, of the international picture, and I say a bit because uh, you could easily spend years uh, researching this. Uh, one, one very obvious and quick takeaway is there is uh, serious AI research underway in uh, many dozens of countries and serious investment being made by governments around the world. Now, it is intriguing that different nations all seem to have a slightly different emphasis and focus in their AI research. Some of them are very focused on civilian applications and things like transportation, smart cities. Uh, you see that with the Australians. You see that with uh, Saudi Arabia and, and many other countries in the Middle East. That, that's where the focus of their efforts largely lies. You see uh, a big focus on robotics um, and people really, again, trying to use artificial intelligence to reduce manpower required for various missions. Uh, you see that with the Japanese. You see that with the Indians, uh, where the robotic focus, oh, and, and the Russians also, to a large extent, have really focused their AI work in the, ro the robotics area. Um, and then you see you know, different areas of focus in the United States. Certainly from the U.S. government perspective, a lot of the uptake has been in the intelligence arena. Uh, and so it's been more about algorithmic and image recognition and things that are, uh, you know, may or may not lead to some kind of a robotic implementation of artificial intelligence. But but definitely my overall takeaway is there is just an incredible explosion of activity across almost every major nation in the world uh, that you think of as a player in global markets. Zach, did you? Uh, yeah, I would, I would just add a couple of things. I, look, it's it's the international uh, investment picture for AI has changed significantly in the last five years. Uh, China has made significant investments in both AI and the supporting microelectronics infrastructure. They've been clear about it. And, and they're clear about it in the impact it's going to have economically to their nation. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a big imperative. It's part of the China 2025 initiative. Um, and it's a, it's a plank in that initiative. Um, the president announced uh, in February of this year uh, the USAI strategy, which also was centered on an economic and economic security and national security impact. And a day later, the department, the DOD, came out with its AI strategy, which largely aligned. In fact, not largely aligned, absolutely aligned. Um, and, and both showed the importance of the technology, and both were both the executive order and the department's AI strategy, both were sort of the launch point mm -hmm. for um, a set of investments that are now on the Hill for consideration as part of the president's budget request for FY20. These are not insignificant, and, and, they're, and they're targeted at the impact that technology is going to have, uh, both in the DOD, in the national security space, but also in the broader economic security space that the, uh, the president discussed president outlined in his, in his executive order of February. One thing, I, you had another point that I think is critical, which is uh, this combination between economic security and national security, because unlike you know some of the technologies of the past, like, for example, missiles, where the application was almost entirely national security, and so it was a critical national technology, but it was something that you could very much compartmentalize within the Department of Defense and its sister agencies uh, and control, if you will, that way. You know, AI and some of the other key technologies that are mentioned in the National Defense Strategy and that are prominent in, in economic discussions aren't like that. There isn't this sharp, bright line between what AI for national security looks like and what it looks like for other applications. Uh, and that's hard in the United States context because uh, I would say we're a little bit allergic to the idea of a government-directed industrial policy 
uh, for the United States. And yet the strategy for AI implicates or suggests one of the implications is that uh, we need to be able to coordinate what the government is doing and what the private sector is doing. And so for China, that coordination is perfectly natural because that's the only way it gets to go over there. Uh, and in here, we've been resistant to it. But um, you know, this idea of the ecosystem, of being able to focus on and invest on the foundations and the infrastructure rather than on the specific applications is, is perhaps a way out of that dilemma. How can government and the military enhance their AI ecosystems? I'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour the Spade Interview Series on Designing the Future of Defense and Security. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guests today are Andrew Hunter of CSIS and Zach Limnios of IBM Research. I want to switch gears a little bit to why you gentlemen were here at Spade this week, and that is to talk about operationalizing uh, artificial intelligence or AI as we defined it for the conversation. Um, I, this may be a dangerous question, but I'm going to ask you to think about it in the sense of what are the key factors that are involved, that need to be involved in order to have a successful uh, AI adoption and, uh, and management within government, but again, in particular in the national security space? So let, let, me, uh, let me offer a couple of ideas. The adoption of, of AI, the adoption of technologies that are rapidly moving from the research early adoption from the, from the commercial space into the public sector space, the adoption of those technologies, it's critically important to have some sort of test bed, some place where a user can, can try it out with the data that they have in the context of their environment. And we've been part of those uh, test beds in lots of areas. Um, I was here a year ago at the Spade Conference, um, and we had a similar discussion. And since then, we've been part of a robotics uh, uh, test bed, um, I think it was in Finland, that uh, gave our research teams access to an environment, gave the operators an ac access to our team, and started to build first understanding of what's possible. We're, we're trying to build. We're trying to build the connection between two worlds that don't that aren't, currently aren't connected. A remarkably deep research team 
an equally deep delivery team, and a set of government users that have admiration for the products and services that we have that have never used them. So the question is, how do you get them to test drive it? And short of a, a major acquisition, which would be nice, but I'm not sure is the right timing, we, we've got we've to build a mechanism for uh, the public sector government users to actually try this out mm -hmm. and, and see what's possible and actually inform the development side. Uh, show us what data they have. Challenge us with their hardest problems. Those are the ones we enjoy. And, and, and let's see what we can do at the seam. It's, it's less about being precise about the, the requirements, and it's more about understanding the context and the value that they want to build out of this environment. One of my takeaways from this morning's discussion is the uh, criticality of the human-AI interfaces. Mm -hmm. uh, and that runs along multiple dimensions, but I definitely want to focus on the issue of trust. Uh, and so uh, a commander, a military commander seeking to operationalize use of AI in their mission area has to be able to trust uh, that product, that solution, that service, whatever, however it sort of coming into their uh, organization. Uh, or they're not going to use it, right? Because you can, you know, the, the organ, the Pentagon, you know, the headquarters can procure this technology. Is it going to get used in the field? It may or may not. It's going to depend on that degree of trust between a commander who's going to give the order to turn the system on and use it, um, if they're aware of it, by the way. <laughs> but leave that complexity aside, and or not, or 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 ban it, or say it can't be used in my area of command. Um, and that trust, I think, is only built over time. So to Zach's point, you know, the ability to actually observe the flow of data that's coming in and how that's influencing and shaping what what these um, artificial intelligence systems are doing, and then how how their feedback responds to that. Uh, I, I do think it is something, trust is something that's gained over time. It is not something overnight. Uh, and we aren't yet at a place where there's any, you know, institution or entity that is so, uh, has such a reputational, you know, uh, ironclad, you know, guarantee that you would just say, if that organization certifies it, I will take it on their word. You know, we have those kinds of organizations in other areas of technology. You know, the nuclear navy certifies something as ready, then that you can pretty much take that to the bank. Uh, we have other entities that have that level of expertise in other areas, but not yet uh, in AI. So that's something we're going to have to build and yeah. give commanders that ability to take it to the bank. I mean, so the follow-up question is that, that sort of element of the ecosystem, which will be the imprimatur, the standard, has uh, that been established? Is that being established? Or where are we there? Because I didn't even think about that element. Uh, I would say in government that it's not there. It's not. it's not there. And, you know, again, to us, it's a key element of why when we think about the AI ecosystem, by the way, it's not meant to mean kind of one thing globally. Uh, there could be ecosystems in individual countries. In fact, there are ecosystems in individual countries. They have connections to each other. And, and I perceive or see that we're going to need to build an AI ecosystem within government, within the government of the United States. Uh, and that's not, that doesn't mean that, that we can't trust the AI ecosystem that I would argue Silicon Valley already represents. Uh, but we do need to have an organic capability there as well. Uh, and so where are we, your question, where are we in terms of developing an AI ecosystem within the U.S. government? I would say very early days. And certainly the establishment of the Jake, 
uh, is a and huge that step. That is where I was going. Actually, great point, Andrew. Could you explain to us what the, let me just say, because acronyms abound when we, it's the U.S. Department of Defense's Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. Please, what is it? What's its mission? What's its intended purpose? Uh, so its mission is to uh, facilitate and assist the adoption of AI technologies within the Department of Defense. Uh, it is a small organization uh, in, uh, you know, just I think they've got offices in Crystal City outside the Pentagon, um, a, but relatively small organization, uh, but with a mandate that is incredibly large. I mean, as the Department of Defense is in a, a massive enterprise, and artificial intelligence is an incredibly diverse field. So they've got a tough job. Um, you know, for an organization that is relatively small, I think it's notable that the head of it, the director, uh, General Shanahan, is a three-star general, right? So they've attached a lot of seniority and organizational uh, priority to this office, uh, reflected by the fact that it has a three-star commander, uh, which normally, you know, an office of that size, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't rank such a, uh, a high level. But, but again, they have to be able to work with top-level generals and other organizations, uh, uh, those commanding uh, systems commands and other major commands to persuade them or to facilitate their ability to bring this technology into their operations. Uh, and so that's where I think having that high-level leadership uh, is is going to be important to the Jake's ability to fulfill its mission. Mm. You know, Zach, you mentioned acquiring. Um, I think you were referring to acquiring the technology or the – and where I'm going with this is around the the issue – in in the government itself, when you think of the FAR, the federal acquisition requirements, how is the AI phenomenon, if you will, in the defense security space going to or currently impacting the acquisition and procurement arm of DOD? I think it's going to have a big impact on a couple of, on three three vectors that I can see right now. First, uh, the acquisition of an AI embedded solution is going to necessarily require something to be said about the data that drives that solution. And, and so it's not a solution that sort of, you know, in addition to in addition to buying this iPhone, I got to think carefully about, okay, what data is it going to operate on and how confident am I, am I going to be of that? So the front-end data piece is important. Um, the back-end um, validation or operational test and evaluation process has to be, how does the department actually know it got something for what it used taxpayer money to buy? So somehow there's got to be a, you know, how do we certify this in some fashion? And then the middle piece is what everyone is struggling with today. There is no clean answer. And the middle piece is, how do we go from a requirements process today that is precise in its requirements down to the second and third digit <laughs> to something that says, I'm going to I'm going to sell you, the Department of Defense, a system that does the following. And by the way, it's going to have a set of guard bands on it. It won't operate in these certain regimes. It might be a little bit fuzzy how it operates within that regime. And if you want, it could exercise an excursion outside that regime. That becomes really tricky. So it's it's not like buying a jet aircraft that says, I you know, I'm going to, I have to have an aircraft that weighs, you know, 58,000 pounds, it's got an angle of attack of such and such, thrust to weight ratio. I mean, it's it's not a, a specified entity as we do in physical systems. It's going to have to be specified a little bit differently. Um, 
I don't know if you have children, how would you specify an 18-year-old if you had a son or a daughter? Yeah. Right, they emerge. Yeah, exactly. They emerge, and, and you want them to emerge. That's a good thing. In fact, you want to help them emerge. You want to feed them the right data. You want to be a good role model. You want to put them in the right environment. So these are systems that, that will be acquired differently, they'll be specified differently, and they have to be maintained in some fashion differently. And the department's going to have to think through that entire process because it will spend billions of dollars in this space, and this, and this is taxpayer money, so there's, a, there's accountability that's yeah. absolutely certain, and it's going to have to be reflected in some sort of process that I don't think is just a patina to what exists today. I think it's going to be something quite different. Andrew, do you want to follow yeah. up? Yeah, two two other additional points I'd I'd make to that, and and I think they're certainly consistent with what Zach has said. Uh, one is that AI is software, and the defense acquisition system is notoriously bad at acquiring software. Uh, and so many of the things that have been in many reports over the years, including some by CSIS, about how do we make the government a better customer of software, are, are all relevant to AI. And there's real process challenges. You know, Zach talked about. Uh, you know, the, the, the detail of the specifications, right, being something down to the nth degree of technical detail, that doesn't work for software. That, that approach is almost guaranteed to uh, give you software you don't want or to make your software development take 30 years that you don't want uh, to achieve that level of specificity and exactitude. Uh, so uh, a different process for acquiring AI because AI is software, uh, recognizing the nature of software development, which is different from hardware development as we've known it over decades. Uh, and then the second piece is on the industry side. Uh, so, you know, again, the, the Department of Defense is used to acquiring from a relatively small number of suppliers. I mean, it's tens of thousands if you look at the entire industry, but within an economy of millions of firms that do business in the United States, uh, it, it's a pretty small slice that are used to working with DOD. And uh, so... The good news is there is substantial investment being made by a range of defense contractors. Uh, and so there's a lot of progress being made there. Uh, again, it's hard. It's hard for the same reason that we've been discussing for the last uh, last while. Uh, but there's also a lot of companies that are important in the AI space that aren't used to working with government and maybe don't want to work with government to some extent. And so, so that's a challenge as well. Uh, when thinking about acquiring AI is uh, we may not be able to get all that we need from the companies that we're used to working with. And, and that's why, you know, initiatives like Defense Innovation Unit and others that have tried to broaden the space of people doing work with DoD are important uh, in this context. What does the future hold for the adoption and use of AI in the defense and security sectors? I'll explore these questions and more when this special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. How and in what areas is AI being adopted in the national security space? What is an AI ecosystem? How can government and the military enhance their AI ecosystems? 
Join Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Andrew Hunter, Director, Defense Industrial Initiatives Group at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and Zach Lemnios, Vice President, Government Programs at IBM Research. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, the Spade Interview Series on designing the future of defense and security. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guests today are Andrew Hunter of CSIS and Zach Limios of IBM Research. So I, I'd like to talk about, before we close, um, any recommendations you gentlemen have uh, for the government sector in general, but the national security apparatus in particular, for leveraging or harnessing uh, the the promises and perils, if you will, of AI. Um, I'd like to start with you, Andrew, first, if you don't mind. So our, our way of thinking about this has been for the government to uh, reinforce strength and try and compensate for weakness. So where the government AI ecosystem is strong, uh, focus on trying to make as rapid as possible progress there. Again, the intelligence community has been an early adopter. Uh, and for the reason that they have a relatively robust set of capabilities that can add up to uh, an AI ecosystem. There's other parts of the military enterprise that I think are promising. I would point to the logistics uh, sector as one where we've got a ton of data. Uh, we're increasingly good at gathering it, storing it. Uh, we have so far been not good at analyzing and using it. And that's where AI presents tremendous opportunities. Uh, and so I think those areas where the ecosystem is already, already relatively robust, we can definitely double down and reinforce there and make rapid progress. Uh, I think we also, though, uh, government being government, can't just neglect uh, those other areas where the ecosystem is weak. We've got to also invest uh, to uh, to shore up that weakness and other areas of the ecosystem uh, and, again, to hedge against future uncertainty. Is there any, you know, you mentioned building, uh, strengthening its own ecosystem, the government that has. Um, how can they do that in those areas that are sort of underdeveloped? Are there, is, is this a, is there anything immediate aside from the monies that are part of the 2020 budget? Um, are they allocated correctly? Do you think that's where it'll help build the ecosystem? Or I don't want to give you a question that may be a little too much of a landmine, but where I'm going is, are there specifics, immediate next steps that can be done to build the government ecosystem around AI? And one of the challenges here is that the areas that need investment uh, that we talked about, the technical debt, the workforce debt, are notoriously hard to analyze in government budgets because they're not directly and independently budgeted for and the way that we budget for the F-35, right, where there's a discrete budget line or a handful where all the money is, you can go find it and you can say, what am I getting for that money? When it comes to IT infrastructure spread across the enterprise, when it comes to uh, the money that goes into developing critical workforce skills, there's no belly button to go push and say, show me where the money's going and how it's doing and if you need more or you need less. Uh, it's it's almost intentionally obscured in many cases. So so it's a challenging problem. Now, having said that, there are some some windows for doing that. Uh, you know, there's this mechanism that's been created for IT modernization, a funding mechanism, revolving fund established by the Congress, which just seems like a good opportunity to spur investment. Uh, and again, I think artificial intelligence, the strategy, gives people that uh, that imperative, that incentive to 
to make these kinds of investments. And then on the workforce side, you have a few tools that are out there. One example would be the acquisition, uh, Defense Acquisition Development Workplace uh, Fund, Workforce Fund. Uh, that can be, you know, an emphasis on developing the skills needed for AI can be made a priority in that fund. And that at least can help on your acquisition workforce side, which is where a lot of your technical workforce is. So um, I don't. I was wondering if, uh, before we close, what's the future in this area? What do you think the future looks like in this area? Do you want to take a crack at it, Andrew? Well, my hope is that... Uh, that it is an aggressive effort by the Department of Defense to build out its an uh, AI ecosystem within the organization of uh, the DoD. Now, I think the necessary leadership for that is going to have to come from the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. Uh, but there, that Dr. Griffin, who currently serves in that office, is going to need a lot of help because organizationally, a lot of what has to be done isn't under his uh, his purview. His goal or his job, his mandate, is to provide leadership. Uh, but it's got to be something that the services uh, embrace and adopt and actually dedicate resources to. And they control the bulk of the resources in the department. Uh, so it's going to take you know, a team effort and uh, uh, with, a, with a strong leader guiding uh, the way. So you know, ultimately, and particularly in our current environment where a lot of authority has been delegated to the services, particularly in the acquisition space, that means the secretary has to take a leadership role uh, because ultimately it's only the secretary who now has the authority to line up all these organizations and point them in the same direction. So the national defense strategy lays out the roadmap, uh, but you know when, when um, Mr. Shanahan presumably is confirmed as an ex-secretary of defense, this is an area he's expressed interest in, I think he's going to have to take a direct leadership role in moving the department in this direction. That's wonderful. Uh, Zach, did you have anything? Yeah, I, I, I would just come back to sort of the way I started my talk this morning, and, and that is that the, the game board is set. The players are there. Uh, the starting point for many of the assets that are needed are in place, and it's time for the department and for the allied nations to actually play the game. And the next step has to be some sort of consortium, some sort of common environment where the defense industrial base can get access to what the commercial sector has leverage that. Um, the department and the allied nations have to have some environment to test the capability of what's available in a mission-relevant space. And we've got to uplift a community that isn't steeped in this technology, but absolutely needs it if it's going to prevail. So it's, it's moving beyond admiration of the problem to actually implementing the solution. We don't need to study the problem anymore. It's time to move. It's time to act. Well, gentlemen, uh, Zach, Andrew, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Michael. Thank I appreciate you. it. This has been the Spade Interview Series, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring the integration of artificial intelligence into national security with Andrew Hunter, Director of the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and Zach Lemonos, Vice President, Government Programs at IBM Research. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation exploring the intersection of government, technology, and leadership. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.